Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get started, I want to send a quick shout out and thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, Elizabeth. And you, like Elizabeth, can help support The Dirt at any number of attractively priced tiers by going to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Um, everything that we get from Patreon supporters goes right back into the show and we use it to bring you that sweet, sweet content. That sweet, sweet content is full of spook because after last week's episode on the anthropology of Bigfoot, Spooktober is well underway. Yeah. And after last week's episode that might only have been scary for high school age me and whoever does PR for Neanderthals, um, I thought <laughs> I thought I'd uh, turn up the scary to uh, 11 for this week and and serve up this creepy pasta, this frightening fettuccine family style. So Anna, <laughs> this is an exercise for you. When you okay. think of classic Halloween, what do you think of? I think about jack-o'-lanterns, which were originally okay. turnips. I think about things that go bump in the night. Ghoulies, ghosties, beasties, dressing up for Halloween. Uh, problematic costume choices. Yeah, that's about it. Okay. Well. Candy. I think of candy. Okay. Well, apart from that last one, um, hold on to your butts, everyone, because this story contains all of those, ex- except the candy. Um, okay. I'm holding my butt. Yeah, <laughs> And just like last year's episode about Clad Holland, we find ourselves on a mysterious, misty island at the edge of the world. Listen to our episode about Clad Holland. Yeah, listen it's to my that finest first. work to date. Uh, maybe don't listen to then, it first. <laughs> maybe listen to it after this and then oh, judge for okay, yourselves well. if I did OK this year. So our story begins in the 19th century CE on the island of Chiloé, part of the Chiloé Archipelago. Archipelago. Man. <laughs> Great start. Archipelago. I used to think it was archipelago. Because like I had lumbago never... rhymes with lumbago. No, because I had never heard I had never seen no, it. No, it's one of those like... words. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about Chiloe. Okay. Our story begins in the 19th century CE on the island of Chiloe, part of the Chiloe archipelago off the Pacific coast of Chile. So you may think that Chile and Chiloé are related there, but it's not. Um, so its name is derived from the Mapuche word meaning place of the sea- seagulls. So um, Chile is seagulls and we Loe. seems, well, oh, no, okay. like is, we is like a place signifier. So it's like seagull place. 
Um, the Chilliwack Archipelago has been populated for possibly as long as 14,000 years. So the site of Monte Verde, where um, we have evidence of Pleistocene occupation, is located there. It's okay. It's on that archipelago. Interesting. Uh, yeah, right? Uh, in the I late- sort of want to drop like ambient ocean sounds and like... Seagull sounds yeah, behind this ambient squawking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My household constantly. Um, in the late 1800s, though, the indigenous population was Chono and Huiche, uh, which are both Mapuche groups. Uh, Mapuche itself means people of the land, which is a fitting descriptor for the groups indigenous to what is today Chile and parts of Argentina. The Spanish had arrived to Chiloé, and so, okay, we're on the island of Chiloé. Okay. We're not just in there, we're like, we're, we're zooming in. So, the pan, the Spanish had arrived to Chiloé in the late 16th century CE, um, and then in the fledgling nation of Chile's movement towards independence from Spain, Chiloé was incorporated into the Republic in 1826. And so, Chile was eventually recognized as an independent nation uh, by other nations by the middle of that century. So the year is 1880 and Chile is new, volatile, and full of white people. Out on the remote <laughs> islands of Chile, though, life works differently. Far from the stern hand of the Catholic diocese or European government or European style government, governance was said to come by way of La Recta Provincia, the righteous province, a shadowy cabal that meted out justice in ways the state could not. La Recta Provincia has been described as a secret society, not unlike the Sicilian mafia that practiced brujeria, sorcery. Go on. Anna, we're talking about witches. <laughs> witches! Yeah, so, yeah. According to an article on Culture Trip, to become a part of La Recta Provincia, uh, male witches were expected to undergo a series of tests and tasks as part of the initiation into the cult. Some of these initiations included um, bathing every night in the freezing cold waters of the Triuan River. Um, some One article on Culture Rips, Trip says 15 nights. Another says 40 nights. 40 nights feels like a biblical yeah, that feels like what they'd be saying it is. Um, yeah. And the idea of like bathing in this this river on the island is to wash away the effects of the Christian baptism. So it's a... So you're, you're washing away the washing. Yeah. So it's like a full on huh. renunciation of Catholicism. Um, okay. Or even more vicious, um, one might have to kill a loved one to use their skin as the fabric to fashion a bag for their spell book. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, so a little little book book jacket. So, in 1880, an ex-member of La Recta Provincia, Mateo Conwecar, came forward to identify the headquarters of the organization. It was a cave outside the community of Kikavi, which I like that it's a cave outside a place that looks like it's called Witch Cave. But I know that's not <laughs> what it is, but Kikavi. No, yeah. <laughs> um, so this cave was more than 40 meters deep, and, uh, and and lit. Oh, here we go. And it was lit by torches of human fat. Oh, Fight Club. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so he had first encountered it twenty years before in eighteen sixty. Oh, 
Light yes. Club. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Nailed it. Um, <laughs> Um, according to Chilean historian Benjamin Vicuña McKenna, when Jose Mariman was king of La Provincia, um, he was, uh, I don't know, he being Mateo, was ordered to go to the cave with meat for some animals that lived inside. He complied with the order and took them the meat of a kid he had slaughtered. Um, uh, sorry, kid, baby goat? Well. Not human child. Okay. I mean, kid. Unclear which. All right. Um, yeah. Um, Mariman went with him. And when they reached the cave, he started dancing about like a sorcerer and quickly opened the entryway. This was covered over with a layer of earth and grass to keep it hidden. And under this, there was a piece of metal called the alchemy key. He used this to open the entryway and he was faced with two completely disfigured beings, which burst out of the gloom and rushed towards him. One looked like a goat for it dragged itself along on four legs. And the other was a naked man with a completely white beard and hair down to his waist. End quote. Whoa. Yeah. So this is, so I first um, heard this story. So last year, Clad Holland came to me like the topic. I learned about the topic first on an episode of lore. Um, mm-hmm. when, when Aaron Mankey was, Aaron Mankey, was talking yep. about this and I was like, what? And then looked it up and was like, whoa. And so this is another episode of the sequel, <laughs> the sequel of, to whoa. Yeah. So this is another episode of lore that I, um, listened to and was like, what did a Google was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so what I'm going to describe next might sound familiar to some folks who have listened to lore, but keep listening, folks. The goat-like monster was the Shivato, which is a deformed mute covered in bristles, bristles like a hog. Okay. The other, and by far the more dangerous, of the cave's twin denizens was something called the Invunche or Imbunche. So British writer Bruce Chatwin describes his character in more detail. And just a heads up, folks, um, that sensitive listeners should go ahead and skip forward to the commercial break. So when you stop hearing me talk. Um, yep. Because it's it gets a little rough. But after the break, it's okay. It's okay again. I got you guys. It's not okay for me. Just I'll stay here. <laughs> So this comes from uh, Bruce Chatwin's In Patagonia, quote, When the sect needs a new invinche, the council of the cave orders a member to steal a boy child from six months to a year old. The deformer, a permanent resident of the cave, starts work at once. He disjoints the arms and legs and the hands and Mm. feet. Then Mm. begins the delicate task of altering the position of the head. Day after day, and for hours at a stretch, he twists the head with a tourniquet until it has rotated through an angle of 180 degrees. That is, Ah. until the child can look straight down the line of its own vertebrae. Ah. There remains one last operation for which another specialist is needed. At full moon, the child is laid on a workbench, lashed down with its head covered in a bag. The specialist cuts a deep incision under the right shoulder blade. Into the hole, he inserts the right arm and sews up the wound with a thread taken from the neck of a you. A lady sheep, the, not yeah, you the second not person. Not a me. No. 
When it has healed, the Envunche is complete. God, who, what sick person came up with this? Well, Ugh. so the image and the story of the Envunche is a powerful one and resonant even today, as you may have heard with Anna's reaction. Um, oh, in the Chilean novelist Jose Donoso's The Obscene Bird of Night, um, it's folded into a story of magical realism that explores identity, alienation, and existence in a very metamorphosis way. Like uh, like Kafka or like Ovid? Uh, Kafka. Okay. Yeah. So no, um, little, the little the, literature flex. The <laughs> right. Okay. The uh, <laughs> the protagonist beco- is becomes the Mbunche. It's um, it's magical realism. So Donoso was part of the Latin American literary boom, and so his retelling of the Mbunche myth story uh, enjoyed a larger audience than ever before. And so here's a quote um, from, uh, this is this is a passage from Donoso's book. The Mbunche, all sewed up, eyes, mouth, anus, sex or- organ, nostrils, ears, hands, legs. Once all his body's orifices were closed up and his arms and legs trapped in the straitjacket of not knowing how to use them, yes, the old women would graft themselves onto the child in place of his limbs and organs and faculties, ripping out his eyes and his voice and robbing him of his hands. So that's a very powerful image there. And if you're looking at thinking about it more metaphorically, that's pretty powerful. But now... Now that we're all good and horrified, let's take a quick break. (laughs) Great. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our Tee Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life and Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. So, Anna. Yep, still here. And and those if, who are either just like popping back in or who went through that with you and me. Um, we just learned about the Chivato and the Mbunche and the cave they protected that was lit by torches of human fat. They were definitely lit by torches of human fat. Um, yep. Do you know how we came to learn about the Shivato and the Mbunche and all the rituals that the Brujas had to perform? Guess, 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 I, guess. I, I'm, I'm assuming somebody wrote them down. Yeah, somebody wrote them down, but... Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. What else did you want me to guess? I don't know. Did we, that, I, they came to someone in a dream. I don't know. No, dude. You're no. supposed to be telling me this story. I know. But the description of the cave came from Mateo Conuecar's confession at the witch trials of 1880. Oh, okay. Was he tortured? Yeah. Oh, well, that's why then. Well, yeah, he was, well, I mean, he was, um, what is it, like heightened interrogation? Enhanced, enhanced interrogation. Enhanced interrogation, interrogation yeah. Um, so, yeah, Mateo Conwekar was was um, on on trial. So this was his confession to witchcraft in 1880. Um, so no evidence whatsoever of the cave was ever found. He told them, like, exactly where it was, and they went, and there's like, there's no cave here. And he's like, oh. 
Um, the testimony itself was written by Vicuña well, McKenna. It was hidden by grass. So. I, yeah, right? So. Oh, the grass. We forgot that part. Um, so oh, the testimony no. itself was written by Vicuña McKenna, who prior to becoming a historian was a Chilean politician and grandson of an independence war hero. So his approach to historiography was to set forward the social mores of the intellectual landed class and to set a model for how the middle and working classes should behave. And so what I'm saying is the uh, dude may have had an angle. Maybe. So Chilean filmmaker and anthropologist Christopher Murray suggests that that suggests what that angle might be when he says, quote, the modern Chilean state knew that the group was active. The group being La Recta Provincia knew that the group was active and influential in local communities. It provided a kind of magical court resolving conflicts between neighbors and imposing justice through witchcraft. Despite plenty of testimonies, the state and modern tribunals had no legal weapon to confront the group. In the penal code of 1875, the pride of the Republic of Chile, there is no trace of the idea of sorcery. The state finally decided to use the notions of illegal association and poisoning to bring the sorceress to trial. Using this strategy, the modern tribunal confronted the magical tribunal um, and then later says the modern Chilean state in its efforts to take control of the island sought legal pretext to dismantle the group, but it continued to operate as a parallel government as witchcraft was not recognized in the modern legal code. The state accused the sorcerers of illegal association and poisoning of locals. A modern state sanctioned witch hunt began in which more than a hundred people were arrested. Most of them natives. The trial oh, was a huge social and legal spectacle, a unique battle between witchcraft and statecraft. After a year, the trial concluded with minor sentences being handed down to the sorcerers. Um, I'm not a fan of the, like, you know, the witch hunt being, you know, accusing people and and doing bad things to them. But it's a really interesting, it's always really interesting to see, like, legal, like, efforts to wrangle the legal language in order to deal with a problem that doesn't have any precedent. They're just like, uh... Uh, well, and in in poisoning? this case, so what I was re- so what I had read um, about this is that it was somewhat intentional because it's because it's not it's because if you if you name it, it's real. And so, have I having nothing about like magic or sorcery or any kind of um, supernatural? Or like mm-hmm. having anything yeah. that that exists like exists outside like the concrete. Um, if you if you name it, you're sort of giving it agency. Yeah, not even agency. You're just you're you're acknowledging it, and acknowledgement mm, okay. is a slippery slope to respect. Yeah. I guess I don't okay. know. Um, so as for that description of the embunche that I subjected you to, which is really what. Oof. I'll include stuff in the show notes. Um, so I don't, I can't, I don't know Spanish, um, which limited me here because there's a right. lot of really great stuff in Spanish and there's a lot of like great bilingual stuff and there's some stuff Google that Google Translate to, only gets you so far. Well, like Google Translate and like my knowledge of Latin only gets me so far. Um, yeah, yeah. But what you, when you look up, like if you look up the Mbunche, um, it's like it's out there and it's something that like creepy corners of the internet like to like to because it's like really it's really messed up where you've got like this thing that's like walking on 
three legs and it's it's yeah. like a it's a it's really like the most like Cronenbergy body body horror thing ever. Um, yeah, it makes me think of um, the Pan's Labyrinth, like some of those. Yeah, like just super like, Guillermo del Toro creepy. Yeah, like truly horrifying. Um, yeah, material. And then there are other examples. There was one thing that um, the, like they also will like. They, they modify the tongue so it looks like a serpent and it says like oh so it can't speak other than guttural whatever's like i read that and i was like actually that's not true because i had a piercer like a piercing artist who his tongue was split and it was like it was pretty cool um and he could yeah, you totally can, you can still you can talk definitely talk yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah um but like you you had that sort of but a lot of it comes back to this description, which came from that English guy's book that was published in 1977 in Patagonia, which is chock full of anecdotes that have been contentious to say the least. There's stuff like um, he said that he left a note to his editor that just said, I'm going to Patagonia. And his editor's like, no, no, he didn't. We like talked about it. It's not a like he very much paints himself as this like sort of. Like soldier of fortune, like, like, but, you know, he's like a traveler. But it's nineteen seventy-seven. Was he writing what the seventies? Okay, no, I was yeah. just asking when he was writing. Yeah, he just w- went tootling around and wrote a bunch of stuff, and people since have been like, "Excuse me, no." Um, so his and other sources connected connect the rumored events of eighteen sixty with the ritual and community activities of Machi, which are. Um, shamans among the native Mapuche populations saying uh, because they say that the last human sacrifice they performed was in 1860 which was you know when Kanoikar like had to go take goat and or human meat to these two creatures um not creatures these two people um yeah yes but like that was the last time they did a human sacrifice but now they're just healers so that's so that's where they try to like weave this together. Okay. There's a professor of anthropology at the University of Buffalo named Ana Mariela uh, Bacigalupo, whose research focuses on Machi among the Mapuche of southern Chile. And she sums it up very nicely when she says, quote, Mapuche history is punctuated by Spanish colonialism, missionization by Catholic priests, resistance to Chilean national projects of assimilation and development, and the incorporation and resignification of Chilean majority discourses. End quote. Um, in so her work is really cool. Like, and I'm gonna link to other stuff that she's done. Uh, but she deals a lot with um, like Machi identity and mm-hmm. um, and how it intersects with gender and how it intersects with like resistance and like survival, like cultural cool. survival. Um, yeah. And so I'm gonna read from. Um, Another another article, um, a, tw- a 2004 article that um, I'm going to link to, quote, since colonial times, Chileans have dealt with the Mapuche in any of three primary ways, by folklorizing them, by marginalizing them, and by attempting to assimilate them. These three approaches are mutually contradictory in that marginalizing in his attempt to exclude Mapuche from national society, assimilation is an effort to include them, if only on terms set by the nation state, and folklorizing them encompasses elements of both. 
Each approach involves its own set of stereotypes of Mapuche, particularly of Machi. The negative images that gave rise to and were created by the marginalization of the Mapuche, that they are barbaric, ignorant, dirty, and so forth, are the same images and that assimilationists aspire to overturn by educating the Mapuche, de-Indianizing them, and converting them to Catholicism. Right. So, so a myth or a, at least a story that involves sort of human mutilation is very much in line with this idea of barbarism. And yeah. 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 It, and it suits that narrative. Yeah. So later um, in this article, in describing ways in which the Mapuche were marginalized and continue to be in pursuit of the imperial project, um, Bachigalupo says, quote, 19th century historians constructed the Mapuche as barbaric, barbaric and excluded them from Chilean history in order to justify their invasion and expropriation of Mapuche land and the relocation of Mapuche on reservations in the 1800s, Chileans portrayed them as lazy drunkards and savages who obstructed state progress. As oh, recently, man. does that sound familiar? Yeah. As recently oh. as the end of the 20th century, this uh, historian Sergio Villalobos claimed the Mapuche, the Mapuche were barbaric and effeminate because they engaged in homosexuality, witchcraft, revenge practices, and polygamy. Even today, national discourses stand Mapuche in opposition to Chileans of European descent who are associated with the upper classes, education, masculinity, and power. All, above all, it is machi, including male machi, because they are partially transvestite during rituals, uh, who be, have become the ultimate symbols of the stigmatized margin of Chilean society. The feminine, the sexually deviant, the traditional, the indigenous, the rural, the poor, the spiritual, and the backward. The Chilean press and church perpetuate an association between passivity, domesticity, reproduction, womanhood, and lack of political power, depicting female machi as fertile Catholic mm. earth mothers, mothers who perform private healing rituals. Machi's drumming and singing, their trance states, and their use of herbal remedies and massages are considered backward feminine superstitions inferior to the knowledge of the Chilean intellectual elite. As bastions of the past who heal with the help of herbs and spirits, machi are often seen as irrational sorcerers, threats to the church and Western medicine, and impediments to the Mapuches becoming modern Chilean citizens. Alternatively, female machi are sometimes portrayed in the media as archaic women who are disappearing with modernity and pose no threat to the state or to the Catholic morality. Cool. Um, and so this, b before I go on the next thing, I also want to point out that, so this, um, this witch trial happened in 1880 and the way that, so this was, um, so Chile got independence in like 1844, I think, I guess it was kind mm -hmm. of contentious. Um, and then there were, there was a lot of like issues with, um, delineating borders between Chile and other European style states in South America. Okay. So they were they were pretty busy for a while. There was a civil war like there there was a lot going on. And so then like the Mapuche were not among their top concerns. Right. And then um, they're like when they wrapped that up and when they sort of. <laughs> When, when like those other like more pressing, um, external, um, and to some degree internal, um, problems were, were dealt with, um, the attention was sent, was set towards looking at, um, La Recta Provincia 
as as trying to dismantle it because it was a source of of um, resistance and opposition. And mm-hmm. so the timing also works in terms of being like, okay, well, we got that settled. Now let's let's stamp this out. Um, and so back on Chilewe, um, and we're going back to uh, Christopher Murray, who we're going to learn more about in a few minutes. Um, he <laughs> okay. he he like. I like I like what he has to say here. Um, oh, okay, I mean, sometimes when you adopt not, that chirpy tone, no, 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 it doesn't no. mean <laughs> no, no. Like the last the last bit is about like the project informing that okay. article that he wrote. It's really interesting. Um, okay, like, cool. And really like new. It's only it came out like at the end of last year, so it's like good timing. Neat. Um, so he says the origins of sorcery on Chiloé are described in a mythical story that circulates through the island. According to this, the Spanish geographer Jose de Moraleda arrived one day in Tenoin, Tenoun, 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 a small village Tenaun. on the. Tenoun. I don't know. <laughs> the small village on the coast of Chiloé. He presented himself as a magician initiated in a. European occult tradition and the oh, villagers presented him to the most powerful witch on the island at the time who was known <laughs> as Chilpia. They challenged each other to a duel to prove who had more power. Moraleda transformed himself into an animal and Chilpia responded by sending the sea back so that all of Moraleda's boats <laughs> ran aground. The Spaniard was so impressed that he gave, <laughs> that he gave her a book of madam. <laughs> Gave her a book of magical practices and spells. This mixing of traditional indigenous magic and European occultism was the beginning of a unique and powerful kind of sorcery. Um, and so that narrative is echoed in a stop on a self-guided audio tour of Castro, which is the capital city of Chile. Um, and it's available online. And it's it's this really cool website that does um, like walking tours like audio walking tours that are synced to Google maps. So you can just do it yourself. Oh, and so that's, like you could do street view and you, no, you no, it's, well, I mean you can, but it's, it's meant for you to like, down, you pay like four bucks oh, for it on your and you okay, have a track okay. and then, um, I see. yeah. And so here's one. So um, it knows where you are and it, and it gives you the, the, the sound clip that corresponds to yeah 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 it's really really cool yeah and so this one's recorded by a local chilean guy named alberto rodriguez and i'm gonna i'm gonna read this little piece for you just ahead on your left is a dark door with a sign above it that reads la cueva de quicave stop for a moment in front of it Eccentrics. Now hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so this this is oh, so nice. Eccentrics among the Spanish and Dutch who arrived, interacted with native medicine men, and this is how witchcraft was carried through the generations on this archipelago in secret. This is the door to a bar that makes reference to a legendary cave in the town of Kikavi where witches, medicine men, and shamans known as La Mayoria practice rituals. During larger gatherings and as their popularity grew, they held gatherings outside. When the governor found out, he put these spiritual people on trial because the authorities believed that other beliefs could endanger the hard-fought and new Christian territory. Okay, let's keep moving. Just ahead is a small (laughs) road that curves to the right in between the area with the wedding seating area. Turn right to cross the street and walk along this little road towards the bay. So do 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 I love this. (laughs) So that's the that's the um the transcript of of the like yeah this this stop and it's just like the cheery matter of fact nature with which rodriguez shares this anecdote and then it's like well let's keep going um 
<laughs> and but something that every like tourism guide or article or blog post you find about Chiloé will say that like something they'll always say is that the locals are quiet about brujeria and not interested in divulging details and they're intentionally close-lipped about that cave and their rituals. Um well and I could see I mean, why. Let's take another break. And okay. when we get back, we'll um, we'll ask why folks might not be interested in talking about the Brujos or La Recta Provincia. Let's go. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timeular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timeular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash Timeular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash Timeular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. We're back. Tell me more. Okay. Remember Christopher Murray, whom I quoted about yep. the, how the modern Chilean state saw the indigenous structures of power and authority as a threat to control over the Chiloé region? I remember. Okay. Well, that was taken from an article he published in the journal Anthrovision late last year in which he described his... <laughs> <laughs> um, all of my, my eyes work in Anthrovision. Yeah. So um, it was a special <laughs> issue on um, visual anthropology in Latin America. Um, Yeah. And so in it, he described his experience attempting to create a fiction film about the historic 1880 witch trials. And so I'm going to read I'm going to I'm going to read some very cool excerpts from this and then we can rap about it. Oh, yeah. Let's rap. Okay, great. (laughs) As I've described. Oh, actually, no, I have to tell you other things first. Um, yeah. Okay. So in it. So he was he wrote about how he went to do basically so field a film work. he wrote or no, or? no, no. It was he was working. He wanted to make a film um, okay. because he's a he's a filmmaker and a visual anthropologist. So he okay. wanted to, um, you know, he he was interested in learning like more about the story and um, writing a like writing a script that is informed by what like local folks are saying. He wanted to cast um, indigenous actors, possibly even local folks. Like he wanted to 
to do like he I think he was trying to go for like a real like Robert Eggers kind of like have you seen the witch is the, that the one that's spelled like the vich the vich yeah have you seen the, it the, 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 the no oh my god it's so good it's one of the best movies it's is one it of my scary? favorite films. Um, it, I don't like scary movies. It is scary because patriarchy is scary. Well, but, I don't like that so, either. Well, okay. So the Vavitch is, um, <laughs> and I put up like two two V signs. So Robert, yeah. <laughs> so Robert Eggers has another movie coming out like next weekend. Um, Great. Uh, which that's the one with the lighthouse. That's the one with um, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. And they're like in a lighthouse together. Um, oh, I know the story that that's based on. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. terrifying. So what this guy did, well, the, what Robert Eggers did the first time with the Vavitch is he wrote and directed a film that is, um, all of the script was informed by diaries and like records from witch trials. And like, it is a very like authentic story. It's called a New England folk tale, New England fairy tale, mm-hmm. or something. But what it, it's it's about possibly a witch, and right, it's, I got that. Part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's um, it is it's it's scary, but it's it's a creeping scariness. It's not like ah! it's like it's ooh. not jump scares, but it yeah. is it's, horror. It's like existential. Yeah. Um, so. I'd That's, like to think not, that this not for is me, what, thanks. okay, well, it's great. Um, and so the next time I yell, I be the witch of the wood, like, you'll know. <laughs> You'd get why. Um, I great, mean, I, you know, a, honestly, if you had yelled that without that context, I still would have been like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I'd like to think that Christopher Murray was going for that sort of thing, like making like a very like um, sort of immersive and like embedded story and so he went and he was you know talking to people he wanted to hear people's stories and it's like oh you know my grandmother like knows this story and then he'd go and she'd be like oh yeah that cave uh, you can't go to that cave like it's caved in like oh sorry i don't know where it is and they're like well if you want to do that you need to talk to the like the community like I don't know, like basically like the community elders. And so he went and he's like, I want to do this and this and this. And they're like, oh, cool story. And then he's like, so I want your approval. And they're like, oh, no, you have to talk to the director Provincia about that. And he's like, OK, well, where are they? And they're like, I don't I don't know. I may know a guy who knows a guy, but like nobody was like nobody wanted to like put themselves out there. And he was talking to like actors and stuff and like people that he like there was a. Um, a community leader that he thought he would really like, he wanted to have like be part of it. And he's like, Oh no, I couldn't because like, I don't want to like offend them. Like, I don't, I don't want to no, No, thank you. And then he was filming stuff and like the film was erased and people were like, Oh, I guess it was sorcerers. And he kept, getting, yeah. he, he kept like getting the run around and it was just like harder and harder and harder. And he's just like, man, what's the deal? And so in this passage, he may figure out what the deal is. Okay, I'm ready. As I've described throughout my fieldwork, the casting sessions, the stories, the personal encounters, the tricks and attacks of the sorcerers, the landscape of the island always seemed shaped by uncertainty. All these experiences brought into 
being a world where the boundaries between entities were ambiguous, at least to the outsider. The island's animals, the local people and pathways, La Recta Provincia itself, all appeared impossible to fix, contain, or define with certainty. At first, I encountered this uncertainty as something involuntary, but as the discourse of resistance revealed itself, I came to understand it as a performed intentional strategy, a strategy of isolating the other from the means to navigate this world or at least submerging them within the relations of power. Mm. And then at... Was that a moo of assent? No, sorry. Um, it, was, it, it did come out as a moo, but I meant yeah. it as like a, an awe of dawning yeah. understanding. Yeah. And so um, towards <laughs> the end of his essay. I turned into a cow. He says, in conclusion, I argue that sorcery in this context is a practice based on producing uncertainty as a means of resistance to constant threats from external forces. It is clear that the discourse of sorcery has changed since the times of the trial of La Recta Provincia in the 19th century. Then sorcery was all about dealing with conflicts and communities, providing justice and health through magic. In other words, providing certainty in moments of uncertainty. But now the provision of justice and health is in the hands of modern institutions. After the trial, La Recta Provincia withdrew into secret, uncertain spaces. Since then, for Chilotes, although the organization still exists and acts, the sorcerers are no longer a motor of certainty. Rather, they are an uncertain occult organization. But the sorcerers have no monopoly on witchcraft and magical practices. Neither are such practices distributed by a central entity like the state. Rather, they are in constant movement. They circulate around the island's pathways and geographical landscape, the relationships between neighbors, the local animals, the fog, Koki's touristic walks, the caves, the people's humor and stories. They circulate without a concrete body or a responsible party. The practices of magic thus shape and reaffirm the ambiguous identity of the island of Chiloé. The core that of my method incredibly astute, right? The core yes. of my methodology throughout the project was the creative collaborative process of developing a fiction film as a device to promote ethnographic encounters on the island. I was not just collecting stories in the abstract, but collecting for a script. I was meeting people not just to talk, but to invite them to casting sessions. I was not capturing images and sounds only for data analysis, but to work out how to capture visually and sonically the uncertain landscape of the island in my hypothetical film. Controversially, I was trying to make visible what was maintained often intentionally as invisible, and to make audible what was often maintained as silent. Their refusal to be recorded made it clear that capturing people in images and sounds seemed a violent practice to some, an attempt to make concrete and certain something that operates intentionally in a less tangible dimension. Whoa. Right? Whoa. And Very so, cool. Okay, so. So, like, after last year's like with Clad Holland, where it's something that I listened to and was like, what? No way. And then looked it up and was like, oh, yes way. And there turned out to be this sort of frightening and very real story behind it this year. And weirdly like consistent practice across across the whole of the, the British yeah. Isles. Like, yeah. What wild. are you guys doing? Like totally wild, like totally wild yeah. stuff. Um, on the other hand, this year, something that I was like, what? No way. And then I looked into Turns it. Turns out, was yeah, like, no way. Oh, ab- but, absolutely but. no way. But it's something that I had known about and had heard about, but 
I had no idea about any of this other stuff. I don't know anything about Chile. Like, I... No. But... Isn't that something? That was... Okay, so... I think that this is a more a more um, pervasive thing than just in Chile. Like I think that clinging to or using the occult as kind of a, a practice of obfuscating or sort of destabilizing a a colonizing power, or even just not even colonizing, but even just the power of whoever's in control. I think that that has existed for a very, very long time. Yeah. And also like sort of the wink and nod. Like, yeah. Like, so I really, I recommend that everybody read this, um, this article. It's called um, The Cinematic Spell in an Island of Uncertainty. Ooh, um, great title. It's, yeah. It's really, and it's really good. Like it's a, it's um so it's also well, the, in a, the parts a, that you read were were great i love yeah that. yeah so it's really like it's it's really fascinating it's really interesting and it's, it's insightful yeah and i think it's a really good example of somebody who's like i'm like i'm informed i'm educated i'm woke i'm gonna go do this and then he gets Whoa. there and he's Whoa. like nobody Uh-oh. wants this okay and like, <laughs> and like moon walks out of there and writes a very insightful article about his experience and why perhaps he it was a bad call on his part. Um, right. If only more anthropologists were like that. Yeah. And so I, I like to think that this story is, is indeed chilling because it's, it's really just oh, like it's horrifying. The story like, itself is horrifying. Yeah. And like, so, I hated that. Yeah. So it's like a, this little snippet of just like, Oh, the locals, they tell this story. And then you're like, no, like, actually, like, <laughs> it was like a direct consequence of somebody speaking, most likely under duress, like in a like politically motivated. Yeah. Um, like clamp down on like probably indigenous with clamps, like organizing or just like structure, like organization yeah. and then perpetuated by. Like, well, everyone, everyone, really. Yeah, everyone. And then how, like, things have changed oh. in the past 150 years. But sort of the the point of conflict is still there between sort of the, the state or, like, the state being either, like, Chilean, like, majority society or the state or being... Or the colonizer, like, yeah. The, well, like, like, the Catholic Church and sort of the impact oh, that, yeah, of yeah, yeah. Catholicism. The story itself is the monster. That's yeah. So I feel like that's really like it's like when we did the the Wendigo, and it turned out that <laughs> the actual Wendigo was like <laughs> European, the, the least monstrous thing of the whole. Story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It turns out oh, that that's true. Despite the horror of this story, uh, <laughs> politics is worse. Yeah. Cool. And, yeah. <laughs> well. You done spooked me. Wasn't that a fun twist, though? Wasn't that a great twist? It was a good twist. See, I would that not. Was really cool. I would not have included like any of that like body horror stuff if it were actually like grounded in reality. Oh no! And yeah, I, that's why because I wasn't looking at the rest of the script, and so we were going, and I was just like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah. No. As it turns out, it's okay. 
Yeah, okay. right. But boy, people's minds are sure capable of coming up with some stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. Thanks, bud. That Thank was a you. cool story. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely um, there's so much more stuff. And so our listeners who um, can read Spanish, um, there's even you more stuff. Tell us, about, tell, us, tell us what that stuff is. <laughs> well, and there's so there's um, I found some some stuff that um, like from the abstracts and things I could read um, uh-huh. like because they were in English. Um, there's some stuff that looks at La Recta Provincia as um like as an institution and like looks at it in terms of like like the like ideas of performativity and reciprocity and so like there's been research done on sort of intra-group dynamics mm-hmm. um which i don't know maybe it would have been relevant to this story but i kind of but uh, i don't know but i'll include it in the show notes for those who um, for sure can read it but yeah this was fun yeah. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for uh, soldiering through that with me. <laughs> um, we will be back next week with even more Spooktober. Mm-hmm. And uh, and until then, uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, where we will be posting spooky images. And actually, on Facebook, I just posted that. Uh, things that sound like Chewbacca video that I <laughs> teased in the in the last episode. Uh, and on Instagram, we are at the dirt pod. So find us there. Yeah. Um, and you can find all of that on our website at thedirtpod.com. Mm-hmm. And if you want to tell us a spooky story, you can do that at the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Happy Spooktober. Goodbye. Farewell. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.